Each and every week, undoubtedly all of us hear from countless sources and voices, but it's good and right for the people of God to gather together and hear from the Lord. And if you have a Bible, you can open it up and as we read it, you will be hearing from God. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we are this morning. We'll finish up chapter chapter 12 this morning, but don't worry, we have plenty in store for the book of Hebrews. We've still got another month left to finish chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, starting in verse 25, this is God's word. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At this time, his voice at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." Would you guys pray this prayer along with me, reading the underlined portions together? Eternal God, you have spoken in the past, and your people have been guided through all kinds of wildernesses and supported in all kinds of exiles and tribulations. Speak to us today in the midst of our own peculiar confessions. Speak to us through your law and give us a sense of order and direction. Speak to us through your gospel. Transform us by your grace. Renew us in hope. For yours is the future, even more than the past. Amen. Here as we come to Hebrews chapter 12, at the end of it, we get to warning number five in the book of Hebrews. In a way, I think you could actually order the book of Hebrews around these five warnings along the way. They, they kind of summarize and end major portions of exhortation that are given in the book of Hebrews. And, and as we have come to each one of these warnings, each one of them is intense in its own way. They're, they're difficult to, to figure out how do we fit this in with everything else that we know and even the good content of the book of Hebrews of this eternal redemption bought through us through Jesus. How the one do we fit these warnings in? And, and they're intense and difficult. But the warnings, what we know, is that they're needed for God's people. And the, the good news is, is that the intensity of the warnings also means that for the faithful, they can, they can then turn around to be a major encouragement for the faithful. In fact, I think that the warnings are meant to be both. I think they're meant to be both a warning and an encouragement. The warning, and having a warning in and of itself, the, the nature of a warning is that God is patient and that he is telling us in advance so that we might not go a certain direction. That is, God's warnings given to us in the scripture are part of God's grace to us as his people. They're an invitation for us to heed the warnings and stay the course and follow after the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Well, the author continues to address this congregation in this kind of warning passage at the end of chapter 12, and he says in verse 25, See to it, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. You 
church congregation, a people called to be holy, who are supposed to be striving after holiness and for peace with one another, a people called heavenward, who, as he said last week, have come to Mount Zion. This is the people that he's talking to, and here is the people who are to be warned and to not refuse him who is speaking. And we just read through that, and it goes very quick to say, that see, though, you don't refuse him who is speaking without thinking about him who is speaking. There's someone that has been speaking to God's people. God has been speaking. He started it a long time ago. We saw this major portion of it at Mount Sinai, where we're kind of taken to that scene where God thunders from the heavens and gives his law, speaking to his people. And here he's speaking again, and the, the fact that God is speaking should astound us. This is the holy God who shook Sinai, who disciplines his people for their good, who loves them enough to still speak to them. This is the God who created everything, but didn't just create it and let it go, but then spoke into it. He he makes himself known. He's the one who thought up speech, and then he makes himself known through that speech. And as image bearers, we get to uniquely imitate our Lord in our Not only in our speech, but in our listening. And God is speaking. And his speaking is not just information for his image bearers. It's not just for us to know and fill our heads with. His speaking is an invitation for the people of God, for all of creation to know God, to love God, to honor God. And so the call to not refuse him is a really good command. God is speaking not just so that we would have information so that we would know love and joy and delight in this God. This is the very thing that we were created for. It's for our good. And yet God is then calling us, don't refuse him who is speaking. It's a good command. But it comes with a warning. You continue on to verse 25. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Now you remember he's speaking of, of the Israelites, so they were at Sinai, they were being warned by God. And at that mountain, the people of God gathered, and Moses trembled, and the people trembled, and the mountain trembled at God's thundered word. And if you were reading that and thinking about the expectation as you read through the book of Exodus, as you read through God's thundering down and giving the law, the expectation then after having seen all that these people had seen, having heard all that they had heard, the expectation would have been maybe that they would believe these promises, believe God's word, and and in in their belief they would then obey them. They would follow them. Surely they'd, they'd heard enough and they'd seen enough to be convinced that this is God's word. This is one I need to obey. This is one I need to submit my life to. But if you'd read a little bit earlier in the scripture in the book of Genesis, namely chapter 3, you would have known that this group of people was born into their father, Adam. And they inherited not only likenesses to Adam, but they also inherited Adam's sin and his sinful nature. And the reality is, is that sinful nature is worse than we think. I, like, I think the prevailing wind of the day is that people are not perfect, but they're not that bad. And I think that the scripture gives us a really clear picture that it actually is that bad. We're not as bad as we could be, but it's worse than we think. And the Israelites show that. Their sinful nature is expressed after Sinai. Their sinful nature and all of our sinful nature. We want to give God the stiff arm so that self can be sovereign over all things. At least so we think. And the Israelites display this. What they do, they leave Sinai and they walk in repeated, continual, and grievous sin against the Lord. This is affirmed to us in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 3, 
Verse 16 says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? All the signs that they had seen, all the power and might of God, the strength of God. If you, if you could be convinced that this is the one true God, this is the people that should have been convinced. And it says, with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. They rejected God, refused to obey his word, and didn't escape his judgments. They were warned, and they didn't heed the warning. And this is, this is weighty because they only heard on earth. That's what Hebrew says. But the Hebrew audience, us today, we're hearing something different. We're hearing from heaven. So they gathered at Sinai, but all those who gather as God's people now gather at Mount Zion. We have come, he said last week, to Mount Zion with angels, with the assembly of the firstborn, with those who are the righteous that were made perfect, with God and Jesus and his blood pleading a better word than the blood of Abel's. That's where we've come. And so we have to heed this word in even a greater and weightier way than they did. We hear a word from heaven. They gathered at Sinai. We gather at Zion. We have one around us in Jesus who not only is at Zion there being worshipped, but he was the one who came down. And we can come to Zion because one from Zion came to us. We read about this one in Hebrews chapter 1 said long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us in this one way by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. This Son is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We've heard a word not just from earth, but from heaven. Heaven came to us. Jesus came as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He was perfectly revealing to us all that we needed to know of God. Perfectly representing God to people, speaking, living, and even dying and being raised as the Son of God. And Hebrews has been telling us, He's the greater one. All of the revelations pale in comparison to this one great revelation. This is the way God wants us to know Him. All of the prophets don't even compare to this greater prophet. All of the priests don't compare to this greater high priest. And all their sacrifices don't compare to this greater sacrifice. All the other covenants that were made have been leading up to this ultimate and superior covenant in the name of Jesus. And so, if Israel didn't escape the judgment of God when they heard from the earth God's voice thundering, then how much more will those who hear the voice that comes down from heaven and then speaks, perfectly revealing the nature and character of God, how much more will they not escape the judgment of God? We are warned in a greater degree than those who were warned at Sinai. And you remember that terrifying scene. Here, he says, actually, this is more. For you, The Israelites had hardened their hearts. They refused him who was speaking. This is what it said in chapter 3, verse 15. And so the exhortation for all since that generation was, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
Jesus came to be like us in every respect, to make propitiation for sins, turning away the wrath of God. As the high priest, he sacrificed himself in order to secure an eternal redemption. And he's still speaking today through his word. Everywhere his word is read, everywhere his gospel is preached, everywhere it is taught, this is God's word still coming out to us. And and the, the people are meant to see it, are meant to hear it, are meant to receive it, and to humble themselves in obedience underneath it. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't harden your hearts like the Israelites did. Look instead at the the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and listen to his words and obey him. Because the reality is that there's a more certain judgment for those who would reject him who came from heaven than those who only heard on earth. God is merciful and gracious, and even now it's bearing witness to us that he is so patient. He is abounding in steadfast love because today is still ongoing. Today, the opportunity to hear his voice, we're we're listening right now. But we need to know that he will by no means clear the guilty. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And what he's not saying is, is he's not just simply speaking of the initial reception of the gospel. Or your initial reception of God's word, your initial hearing of it. No, chapter 12 has been all about this ongoing obedience, ongoing endurance. Keep striving, keep running, receive the discipline of the Lord, strive for holiness, strive for peace, see to some things with one another. All that is saying, this is talking about ongoing obedience, that's what he's meaning here. See to it that you keep on not refusing him who is speaking to you. So the Hebrews, uh, the audience, they had received God's word. It seems like they'd followed after Jesus, they'd claimed his name, but they were tempted to move on from him to something else. Time had gotten difficult for them. They'd had all sorts of pains and struggles and trials because of their following after Jesus. And so maybe they thought, if we just move on, something better will come to us. But he is warning here, moving on is going to lead to judgment, so don't refuse him who's speaking in an ongoing manner. And so the warning to not reject him who is speaking, it doesn't get less from here, it only gets more. We look in verse 26. At that time, at Sinai, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 21 said that Sinai was a terrifying sight. Everybody agreed. The mountain agreed if it could speak, it was trembling. Moses agreed, he trembled with fear. The people trembled with fear. Everybody is trembling, they're all agreeing. Sinai is a terrifying sight. But he says, that's not the most terrifying shaking there's ever been, or ever will be. There's still one to come, just one, and it will be more terrifying than the one that was stated about Sinai. And so what the author does is he takes a a prophecy from Haggai chapter 2 that speaks of this comprehensive shaking to come. Kind of an end times shaking, one last final shaking. That it's more terrifying than Sinai is an incredible detail. But this was not meant in Haggai or even now to be just bad news and terrifying news. There's good news here, at least for some. See, Haggai prophesied uh, of a shaking. And his, his prophecy of the shaking was a provision from the Lord, provision for God's people. They were trying to rebuild the temple. And as they're looking around, they're thinking, we're never going to recapture the glory that the temple had before under Solomon's reign. So what are we to do? And God said, you know, I'm going to shake the, the nations. I'm going to provide for you. It was a day of provision and filling. It was a day of glory that they were speaking about for God's people. And so here's what it was doing. The shaking was warning those who are in right relationship with God. This is, this is an encouragement to you, but if you're not in right relationship with God, it was to be as a warning. Warns those not in right relationship, but encourages the faithful. 
And so as Israel rebuilds the temple, they're longing for its former glory. God encourages, I'm going to shake this place once more. As the Hebrews are going along in their lives, suffering pain for following Jesus, he says, there's one more shaking to come. They're longing for better days when they were without persecution. And in the midst of their difficulties and struggles, their longings, their desires, they can be dangerous and they can go down a bad direction. But they can also be useful. They can be met with, need to be met with both a warning and encouragement because a shaking is coming. And those longings can go in the wrong direction, so be warned. But those longings can be turned Godward, be encouraged. There's a shaking to come. A shaking is coming and only the things that can't be shaken are going to remain. He says, verse 27, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And so we're, we're, now we need to question, is this, is this a warning or is this an encouragement? Well, it depends on what remains and your relationship to what remains. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there was a prophecy going around about Narnia. Narnia was a place that was under the, the rule of an evil witch, the white witch. It was always winter, never Christmas. It had a stranglehold on the land. And there was this prophecy that was going around, and here's what it is. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Now that message was a message of hope to those who were tired of winter and longed for spring. That was a message of hope to those who are faithful and longing for the return of this lion. That message was greatly feared by any who were in the ranks of the white witch. Because the prophecy said winter is going to disappear. So if you're clinging on to winter, you're going to be met with loss if this prophecy comes true. Here the prophecy is all things are going to be shaken on earth or in heaven. Everything's going to shake. Here's what he already told us in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 10, he says, And the Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. God's going to remain. God's going to remain, and so... If it's a warning or is it an encouragement, it's going to depend upon your relationship with God, your connection to God. It's going to depend on your connection to His kingdom, which He told us and, and He's going to tell us and imply to us that this kingdom is an unshakable kingdom. It's going to remain as well. And so your connection to God and His kingdom is going to depend on whether this should be taken as a great warning for you of coming judgment or an encouragement to you that there's a judgment to come and you are going to be in an unshakable kingdom. Because all those who remain are those who belong to the kingdom of this God. Who are connected to this kingdom by relationship with Him. Verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If you go through the history books, you're going to have uh, several things where they're going to say the rise and fall of this empire. The rise and fall of the next empire. So you have the, you look through biblical history. Yeah, you have the rise of the Egyptians and the fall of the Egyptians. You have the rise of the Syrians, the fall of the Syrians. The rise of the Assyrians, the fall of the Assyrians. The rise of the Babylonians, the fall of the Babylonians. 
The rise of the Persians, the fall of the Persians. The rise of the Greeks, the fall of the Greeks. The rise of the Romans, the fall of the Romans. We could keep going. I think we've covered most of the Bible there, except for Revelation. I'll leave that for another time. Every kingdom. Every single kingdom. In other words, they... Every kingdom is inevitably going to rise and fall, if there is a rise at all. Because every kingdom has this one inescapable problem. It's death. No kingdom can keep their people from dying. They've tried it over and over again, and yet they just keep dying. No kingdom can keep their kings from dying. They keep dying as well. And so what happens if you're replaced by lesser people or a lesser king or a more selfish king or more selfish people? All of a sudden, your kingdom just spins out of control, and then you have the fall of a kingdom. They all have this inescapable mortality in their midst, all except one. And Aslan is on the move. There is one kingdom with an eternal king. It's an eternal kingdom that he has. And the members who are a part of this kingdom are safe because death has been defeated for them on their behalf. Therefore, this kingdom and its king and its inhabitants are part of the things that cannot be shaken when this one final shaking comes. There have been many attempts to put down this kingdom and to shake it to where it doesn't exist anymore. Many of the kingdoms that I just spoke of tried to eradicate the people of God, tried to smash out God's kingdom over and over and over again, and yet it just keeps cropping its head. It won't go away. Jesus said, you know what, hell can try all it wants to too, and even there it's not going to perish. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we could sing along with Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go. His mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And so is the truth of this news of this kingdom that can't be shaken meant to warn or meant to encourage? One's relationship with God's kingdom makes all the difference. Here's what the Bible says about our relationship to this king and this kingdom is that we're enemies. We deserve to be cast out. We deserve the judgment that comes from God, but, but, the son of the king, the son of the king, what does chapter 1 verse 3 said, that he he came, and, and after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The son then welcomes all who would draw near to that throne of this king in that kingdom, if they would just draw near to that throne through him. Through Jesus, not only are we welcomed into the kingdom, but we're also given the inheritance of the kingdom as sons, as heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. And so for those who are reconciled to God by the death of Jesus, this is meant to be an encouragement to you. There's one more shaking to come, and you are part of this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Praise God. But there's also a warning. Because there are those that are still enemies of this king and of this kingdom And there's one shaking to come, and you will not remain. Every other kingdom's going to fall. They have an inescapable mortality. For those included in God's kingdom that can't be shaken, what is the conclusion from verse 28? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us, another community, congregational exhortation for the people of God, those who are partakers of this kingdom that cannot be shaken, those who have come to Mount Zion, who trust in God, have every reason to be grateful. Indeed, they have infinite reasons to be grateful. Oh, your goods have been plundered, you have an abiding possession, and actually it's a better one. Oh, you're you're facing all sorts of persecution and pain, well, you have a pioneer and perfecter of your faith. He already went through that, he knows the way, he'll lead you onward. 
Oh, you, you, you have stuff down here where rust and moth destroys. Well, you can look forward to an imperishable place. Now, many despise you. You have a Father who loves you eternally. You face many pains. God is disciplining you for your holiness. Holiness is this thing that has value both in this life and in the life to come, Paul says. In all of your struggles of any nature, you have a high priest who already sits ready for you to come. He says, I'm ready to give grace to help in your time of need. And so this leads to thankfulness, gratefulness. Therefore, let us be grateful. One pastor says it this way, that thankfulness is a good test of your faith. Its absence demonstrates that your faith is no more lip service than experiential knowledge. Thankfulness is a good test of your faith. If your faith is genuine, your gratefulness will be as well. And it will flow from your joy in this king and in his kingdom that you could take part in that you know you have no place at. Somehow you've been welcomed in because the son came to you and said, come to this kingdom with me. And from that gratefulness then, this is this famous quote from C.S. Lewis that he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. So what do you do when you enjoy something good? You're going to do it all this week. You're going to eat Thanksgiving food and you're going to take pictures of it and you're going to send it out and you're going to be like, this was great. And you're going to say stuff about it. You won't just eat it silently. Like you will, you'll say stuff. I know you will. And there are all sorts of outlets for you to do so. That's natural. In fact, that's what God wants us to do. Because our praise of these things, I, I agree with Lewis, that it, it completes the enjoyment. It expresses it, but also completes it. And that's what, Hebrews, that's what the book of Hebrews commands here. Be grateful and then complete your gratefulness by expressing your praise to God. Listen to verse 28. God continues on. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let us, another congregational exhortation for the people of God who have come to Mount Zion, who have been welcomed into this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Here's what you are to do. You are to worship. Your worship is this work of intentionally acknowledging out loud and in in ways that can be known the infinite greatness and glory of God. But here he says you need to offer acceptable worship. Paul tells us acceptable worship in in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. He says, I appeal to you. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Offer yourself. Throw yourself upon the altar. This is your offering up to God. Say, God, do with me what you will. And he says, this is holy and acceptable to God. It is your spiritual worship. And so worship, as one author says, is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can can ever become. This is your acceptable worship. Out of your gratefulness to God, this is your worship. Offer all that you are and all that you you can be and all that you do and all that you can ever become. You offer it to God. You let your will be done here, God. But he says that this worship is to be expressed in a certain way. He gives directives for our worship. And so if we think that, that God says, just worship me and just figure that out. He doesn't do that. Not in the scripture anyway. He gives us directives for how our worship is to be. What, what is to mark our worship? And he says, you are to worship with reverence and awe. Not haphazardly and lightly. Not nonchalantly and effortlessly. I think that in most churches today, there's a good and right emphasis on, on the fact that God has come to us. That he has made himself known, that he is gracious and merciful. And yet, I think we've done that at the expense of the greatness and glory and grandeur of God that should make us tremble before him. 
Like in other words, we, 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 we understand, I think, fairly well the, the eminence of God, that he is with us, and yet don't really comprehend much of the transcendence of God, that he is still above us. Those two are meant to be together, and they're meant to be beautiful together, that God is so great and glorious, and yet has come among us, should make the wonder of God and the worship of God be fueled forward with even more force. But when we take one at the expense of the other, all of a sudden reverence and awe and worship doesn't make sense to us. And yet we're directed to make our worship full of reverence and awe. Not mushy and gushy and we love, we love Jesus and everything's fine. No, he also can make you tremble. We need to worship him with reverence and awe. There's, 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 not, there's not the spirit of taking Jesus lightly. And it's not effortless. I think when we speak of reverence and awe, that, that, that means that both our heads and our hearts are, are engaged in this. Reverence, because we know some things about God. We, we, we have our mind filled with the greatness of God. All because as we respond to what we know about God, we can't help but go with like, whoa, who is this that would make himself known? And so in our worship that's to be filled with reverence and awe, both our head and our heart are intentionally engaged. And it has to be this way because verse 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. Right? So this, the same truth was given to Moses on the mountain. He's given all these warnings for the people and they given this exhortation for, for him and the people to obey. And he's, The reason why is that God's a consuming fire. That's why you obey. And so the same truth that was needed for those on Mount Sinai to not take lightly God's word is the same truth that is needed for the people who have come to Mount Zion to not take lightly God or his word, that he is a consuming fire. So the God that was at Mount Sinai hasn't changed. He's still the same today. And he says he's a consuming fire. This is a warning to the people of God not to abandon the covenant that God has given to us in Jesus. That was the same function it had in Sinai. God is a consuming fire. Obey this covenant. Don't break this covenant. Now, here we've come with a new and greater covenant, and here we have the same truth. God's consuming fire. Don't abandon this covenant. Don't go away from Jesus. If that was true for the old covenant, how much more for the covenant that was bought with Jesus' blood that we see in chapter 10, verse 26, speaking of this covenant, that if we go on sinning deliberately, another warning passage, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. We have a fire pot in our backyard. Just fill it full of branches that fall from my trees. And I have to warn the kids to be careful. Right? They're young. They don't know how to handle fire. I say, you, you can't go too close. But to say, like, don't go near it is a little bit too simple. Right? Because we light the fire so that we can go near it. It's warm. It's wonderful, like watching a fire. It's great. So I can't just say, well, don't get close to it at all, because that's the whole point of lighting the fires, that we get a little bit close to it. So I don't want to be too simplistic and say, don't go near it. But yes, I have to teach them, like, you just can't, you can't just run up to it. What if you fall into it? You can't just bring leaves and sticks and just throw them in there and expect nothing to get lit on fire. That won't work. So we have to be careful with how we approach. I want to start the fire so that we can draw near I want us to come close. I want us to be able to stare and wonder at what, what, is this, what is this like? Just fire. I love to just stare at fire. Don't go near is too simple, but stay away. That's too cold. No, we need to draw near rightly. 
It's like, here's how you draw near, kids. You don't have to run, sprint up here. You can get here in plenty of time if you just walk. Then we can sit calmly. We can even hold a marshmallow over this fire. Everything's good here, but you got to do it the right way. And God's a consuming fire. He can't be approached any way you choose. Now, you don't get to decide how you approach a consuming fire. Heed the warning. Come with reverence and awe before God. He's a consuming fire. He's not going to be approached, however, and he's commanding us at the same time in Hebrews to draw near. He's a consuming fire, and he says, come on, come near. This consuming fire is welcoming us in. So here we have the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. He's a consuming fire. Come with reverence and all, but come near, please. Come on in. What an encouragement to the people of God. Those who trust in Jesus who would plead the merits of his blood, who would venture on him and venture holy, are in. We're in. You get to come into this fire. Those who approach this fire have come to Mount Zion, should be full of reverence and awe before him. So much reverence, so much awe, because this consuming fire has welcomed us into relationship with him, a place that we should have been burned by. Here we are safely. So much reverence and awe should fill us that we've got to find a way to express it in praise. We've got to complete it with praise. And so do you worship with awe and reverence of a God who's a consuming fire? Is your heart full of of gratefulness because of what this God has done, because he has an unshakable kingdom and he wants you to be a part? Now today, if you hear his voice, I would say, don't harden your hearts. That God is using this warning as a means to show his grace and to be gracious to us that we would heed it and listen to his voice and follow after him. God is being patient still. Don't refuse him who is speaking. Here when we have these warnings about approaching God as a consuming fire full of reverence and awe towards him as we approach, that's an invitation for us to worship. So are you worshiping this God? Well, one way to be reminded of the right way to draw near to God is to do the drawing near as he's prescribed. One way he's prescribed the people of God is to draw near in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship that the people of God are to participate in together as one. We come forward as uh, full of reverence and awe that one who is in heaven came after us, lived and died, that we might live eternally with him. We're welcomed in a table that is a place that we we don't deserve and haven't earned, but someone has bought our place at this table and wants us to come near. But in this Lord's Supper, there's still a warning. Not everyone is to draw near to the table. Those who don't know Christ are not to draw near. Those who are out of fellowship are not to draw near. There's a warning here. He says you can eat and drink judgment upon yourself for how you take and approach this table. It's the same kind of way you approach God. There's a warning here. It's meant to be an encouragement to God's people, but a warning to those who aren't. And so I would say today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. If you're a part of God's people, come. Be encouraged by what Jesus has done on your behalf. Worship by taking the bread, dipping in the juice, and being reminded of what Jesus has done and of your union with him by faith and what he will do in the end when there's one last final shaking and he comes and takes us all to be with him where he is. If you're not a believer, we'd encourage you, don't take this meal. This is not for you. We encourage you instead to take Jesus. Be welcomed into his kingdom by his grace, and then we'll prepare you to take this meal next time. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for loving us enough to warn us, to direct us in the way in which we are to approach you. Forgive us for taking you lightly. Forgive us for thinking that we can approach however we choose. 
God, you created us. We did not create you. We are to follow you, not you follow us. God, help us get that right. And Father, I pray that we would approach this table in reverence and awe for you. And that your name would be honored and glorified in the way that we participate together in worship now. God, would you help us to have hearts full of gratefulness that would have to express themselves, that would make sure that they, they were expressed in praise to you. And God, in all this, we're, we're asking in our gratefulness, in our worship, would you be honored? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.